welcome to the next of the series, The Anatomy Cupboard. This is Vale Philip Larkin, but it's also our Admiral Baron Jan Herbert von Bassenauer, Buster Gut. I met Professor Philip Larkin twice, once about halfway into the last year of his life before his heroic surgery for an esophageal cancer that was strangling him and more importantly his enjoyment of wine. And once again a more fateful visit a few days before he passed in which he made the most candid but ridiculously absurd remark that so reflects that most impersonal aspect of the stiff British upper lip. So I should explain myself. Last words uh, I think are important. Of course many of these are pretty apocryphal and maybe the things we would have preferred people had said rather than what they actually did say, if anything. I know there's that ironic one of uh, US Grant's uh, General of the Unit Union Army, John Sedgwick, who got the chance to shout that, uh, quote, the enemy couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. That was in the American Civil War's Battle of Spotsylvania, and then he was immediately killed by enemy gunfire. Well, that's just embarrassing. But there's the occasional one that is profound. A lot of them are terminal religious conversions, more aspirational in nature, that there might actually be something out there that cares for you, or which has it all making some sense. Anyhow, when I met Larkin the second time, he was already a few months after his surgery. His surgeon, one of the most remarkable people I've ever worked for, for his profound skill, quickness of decision, fairness of attitude and comprehensive mind, I don't need to name him here, but his surgeon, who was my boss, having told Larkin that Sadly, try as he might, the cancer was unremovable. Irresectable is the term we use, and in Larkin's case, the cancer had broached to its walls and invaded mercilessly into the structures crowded around the heart and the root of the lung, and it surrounds the pleural cavity, and it had adhered to the main great vessel, the aorta, and the small nerve, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, as it's called, that runs back above the heart to the left vocal cord. Larkin had been hoarse of voice for a while, and that alone was a signal that the cancer was essentially incurable, with surgery alone inoperable. Nevertheless, my old boss had attempted it without success. These days, they'd shrink at first before attempting the knife, a sort of cocktail of chemotherapeutic agents that allowed it to become mobile enough to remove. But this was the 1980s. We can all remember, well, some of us anyway, what we felt like back then, how we dressed, what sort of music we all listened to, even what girlfriend had dumped us, that sort of thing. So I saw that old Larkin had been readmitted a few months after the operation following a collapse at home. His admission was, of course, a reluctant one. He didn't like attention, or more correctly, attention being drawn to him. And he didn't much like people, let alone people fussing about him. He was a quiet and contemplative soul. 
They'd made him a professor of librarianship at his local Hull University. When I worked there, I must say that the university had a rather excellent Italian department. You'd learn Italian in the first year and then study in the second Italian history and art and architecture. And the third year, you were billeted to a family in Florence. That's my kind of course. <coughs> anyway, I'm, I'm digressing again. Whenever anybody saw Professor Larkin, they most likely felt as I did then, as if, it, as if we were interrupting him and his work or his thought processes. Context would invariably no doubt begin, as I did then, with an apology, a sort of sorry for disturbing you and the like, that kind of thing. And you get the same feeling in the house at Maresfield Gardens in North London, where Sigmund Freud spent the last year of his life. The idea that the house would have been kept completely quiet and that old Sigmund would have been shielded from outside distracting contact so that the great professor could think and write in peace. Another one sadly gnawed away at by an incurable, greatly advanced cancer of the mouth. Anyway, to return to Larkin, an enigmatic soul, he was the one who actually refused the position offered of Poet Laureate after Sir John Betjeman had died. It was given to Ted Hughes instead. I don't think Larkin really wanted the responsibility, the necessity of intermittently having to come out in verse after any triumph or catastrophe and write some national epithet about it. He wasn't that sort of resonating poet. I suspect he would have gotten on better with the likes of Hughes more than with a, a pliable laureate and genius servant of the crown like someone like Alfred Lord Tennyson. So I fully expected that I couldn't get in to see Larkin and say hello or that there might have been some muscle on the front door like a disco bouncer, but there was no one outside and the old professor was sitting up in a lounge chair, a cravat tied loosely around his neck, pipe firmly in place, reading a newspaper, the windows open, the shades up with the bleak vista of a typical grey wintry hull morning, it, it being November, and a full and uninspiring view of the car park from his hospital window, the building that, because of its glass front, he had so aptly once called this lucent cone. Asking him how he was, he grumbled on <coughs> about the state of hospital food, but he uniquely singled out their complete inability to construct a Yorkshire pudding, as he put it. I'd have thought that that might have been the least of his worries, but perhaps I did then and still do now in the grand sweep of things underestimate the significance of northern English pastry. We talked about the little things, as was his way, the loyalty of cats, the price of cod once the English had lost their fight with Iceland over the fishing rights of the North Sea, that sort of thing. He was appalled that one could walk down the docks of one of the most important ports in England and find locally caught fish that would remain unsold, so that by the third day you could lift the skin on one with a dull eye and find maggots under the surface. It was shocking. And then he told me how he felt when his surgeon had told him that the cancer was inoperable those few months back. To him, living through it, it had seemed a lifetime ago. You know, young man, he said, peering at me through those remarkable Coke bottle lenses, that was possibly the worst news I've ever heard. And then it seemed as if my audience was over. He looked back to the newspaper and my interview, such as it was, was done, completely indifferent to his own well-being. 
as though he were reading a stock report or a travel manifest. I said goodbye, and he waved a hand, a bit like royalty I might, I suppose, to the masses. He died a week later. I'm glad to see that by 2016, just over 20 years later, he's had a commemorative stone placed in Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey. Well, here's the thing. Possibly the worst news? Take it on the chin. Buck up. This was the man who had written the great poem, This Be the Verse. This was the man who had written, They F you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you, and much more than that. A man with so much insight into relationships, many of which I admit he had witnessed from afar. Is that all he had to say? That his cancer was incurable was possibly the worst news he'd ever heard. And then go back to his reading after having been told such a monumental piece of news. I suppose that's the difference between monumental and inconsequential. What's meaningful to someone may not mean much to another. Well, it's just a little lead-off into the esophagus. It's a wily organ. That bit between the back of the throat, the gullet, one might say, and the stomach. Its job is a simple conduit, but it has a particular propulsive coordination that we still don't fully understand that keeps things down so that every time we lie down and try and go to sleep, all that we've eaten doesn't rise into the back of our throats. Well, of course, it does in some people who can have terrible gastroesophageal reflux, or GERD for short. I'm sure there'll be some listening out there who know precisely what I'm talking about. Whatever the mechanism that keeps the junction between the stomach and the esophagus intact or competent, we might say, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the most efficient animal in this department is the bat. Well, the thing hangs upside down all day and still keeps all of its food down. But I suppose that its other end is probably the weakest in the animal kingdom. If you've ever explored a bat cave, as I have, you literally sink up to your ankles in bat guano. So it swings and roundabouts, I guess. The other thing about the esophagus is that when it becomes cancerous, that cancer, esophageal cancer, is particularly nasty. The pancreas, too, has this propensity, as do some forms of brain cancer. These guys have a habit of sneaking up on people in such a way that by the time they present with frank symptoms, they're already quite advanced. In the case of the esophagus, it's, it's locale that it's part of the problem. It's squeezed in between behind the heart and it's near the lung root. A little invasion, or infiltration as we call it, into its surrounds and it's considered locally advanced. The sort of cancer that when it flexes its muscles a little outside of its own walls, the number is up. Have these cancers no idea that if they strangle their host, they've established their own death sentence? Perhaps they don't care. Maybe they care more about celebrity, esophageal cancer, taking out the likes of Humphrey Bogart and Christopher Hitchens.
the other thing the esophagus does, which is interesting, um, is that it spontaneously erupts. And one of these is the story I'm going to tell now. It, it can, if so overstimulated, split itself down the middle with often fatal consequences. Now, this is called Berhaves syndrome. And here's where my interest in the history of anatomy collides uh, with clinical reality. The condition was first described by that remarkable 18th century Dutch physician, um, Herman Berhaves, who was born in 1668 and who died in 1738. Um, to finish it off, firstly, Berhaves described his syndrome as, quote, the most atrocious malady whose vehement violence hastened the death of the great hero, that famous and noble man, Baron Jan Herit von Wassenaar. The man coming from the dynasty of uh, Rosenberg, or Hirven Rosenberg, was a grand admiral of the Dutch fleet and the prefect of the Rhenish roads. Brahav describes attending the Baron on... October the 29th in 1723, attending a man who could neither sit nor lie, he was in such distress. The baronet admitted to a little feasting some three days before, followed by a short fast, the type of thing we might now call the five and two, that um, uh, evening fast or so. But So what was in that last meal? Something dodgy. Well, it was hard to tell in the menu of an aristocrat, certainly at that time. He had a little veal soup, some white cabbage boiled with sheep, that's not specified in any manner or amount, some spinach, and then some roasted calf sweetbreads, a duck, two larks, bread and apple compote, and a dessert of grapes, pears and sweetmeats. To drink, he had some beer, although how much is unclear, some wine from Moselle, and three cups of what the Belgians call Spurkommen, which is some tepid water mixed as a kind of tincture with the noxious weed Carduus Benedictus. It's also known as St. Benedict's Thistle, or as the Holy Thistle. Some used it at that time for any inflammatory condition like gout, the sort of curse of the aristocracy, the disease of kings and the king of diseases. Anyway, his physicians, which included the esteemed Berhav, administered to the suffering baron some wine and beer and then some oats and roots of scores and era, some skirt and white poppies with a little rub on the chest of flour and milk all to no avail. When the good baron died five hours later, it was Brahav who set to cutting, cutting the baron open in his house to find out precisely what it was that had killed him. The family immediately agreed, and he, that is, uh, Brahav, opened the body in the presence of the town physician, Dr. Dubai, along with an erudite scholar, Dr. Franken, the honourable politician Nicholas Stamm, and an unnamed family surgeon. Brahav's notes uh, on this are really meticulous, and he wanted to write it in such a way that anyone who was reading it would feel like they were right there. 
when you read it, it's like he sort of anticipated an episode of CSI. Well, firstly, the body of the naked baron had a lurid purple colour over the back of his chest, and that colour, whatever it was, had a feel to it of a crackling when touched. The feeling Braham describes as a crepitation was in fact the dispersal of bubbles of air under the skin, and there's really no other feeling like it if one's felt it, as if someone had placed really a piece of cellophane under the skin. It's the effect of dissemination of air, of air from a rent in the esophagus that has dissected its way through the soft tissues. And one does feel this after uh, a punctured lung, for example, so it's quite a classic feeling, but it hadn't really been described uh, uh, before. The description blow by blow of the autopsy, at least for those who are interested in that sort of thing, is pretty riveting. Pages of details and how with each wield of the dissecting knife the tissues open up. Well, the main finding is this fantastic explosion of air as Brahav opens the chest cavity. The only other thing he notes is the peculiar odour, which he said smelt like duck flesh, as he put it, and it contained in it, in its 104 ounces, everything that the noble baron had eaten or swallowed a few days before. Here was duck flesh and dancing beer and the dark red carduous St. Benedict's thistle water that he had drunk. So anyway... Brahav finds a giant rent in the lower third of the esophagus as the culprit, and the mechanism is induced by someone whose throat is basically clothed, closed, but who's attempting to repeatedly vomit, and in so doing really rips a hole in the lower end of the esophagus. It's like splitting a filled balloon by pressing on it. Closed at both ends, something had to give. And in some ways it's surprising that this horrendous ailment, what's now called Brahav syndrome, an esophageal rupture. It's surprising that it doesn't happen more often. Now, there should be no real doubt that old Brahav was quite the genius. He was the father of modern clinical medicine. He really was the first to devise how patients should be examined and in what order. And of course, what many of the visible signs of disease might look like. This was the guy um, who started teaching by the bedside, which since has been mother's milk to the medical student. His fame did come from his description of the syndrome, true, but it's also been argued that it shone in the light of Van Vassenaar himself because of the Admiral's known habit for gluttony and purging himself. Diseases is actually named after the suffering patient, though, are exceedingly rare. It's rather the physician who, like the explorers, is actually the discoverer. And that fight over anatomical discovery is the theme of another podcast. But for now, old Brahav, if nothing else, was a strict observationist and an empiricist, even if he did spend his time rubbing dying people like von Wassner on the chest with a solution of warm milk mixed with flour. To conclude, I must say I like a physician like Brahav, who actually started his life as a divinity student before going into medicine, and then doing his medical dissertation, which he entitled De Utilitate Explorandorum in Egris Excrementorum Ut Signorum. I like this 
the utility of examining signs of disease in the excrement of the sick. That was his doctoral thesis. Mm. A different era. I like, too, the fact that he was first appointed Professor of Botany and admitting after his appointment that it was a subject about which he knew almost nothing. He started his day, anyway, after that appointment with the Hortus, the, uh, the uh, gardens, and he began many lectures there, discovering plenty of new plant species in the botanical gardens and having the odd one named after him, uh, that species, not garden. But as a professor of medicine, he was also later appointed professor of chemistry, but as a professor of medicine, he excelled. He had patients travelling across Europe for his opinion, and his patients included Tsar Peter the Great of Russia, the novelist Voltaire, the naturalist Carolus Linnaeus. Brahav's clinic was visited by almost all of the Edinburgh faculty of surgery, and his fame was so considerable that he'd received letters simply addressed as Dr. Brahav, physician in Europe, and he'd get those letters without any trouble or delay. If you think about it, the only others who can get such a generic letter delivered without any address are the Pope and Santa Claus. Anyhow, I've rambled on a little bit about that. The idea was to talk about diseases of the esophagus. But thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.